Lesson 24 in the study of the book of Hebrews finds us at the beginning of chapter 9. Just as by way of a short uh, review, the author has thus far shown us the superiority of the Messiah to all the other messengers, even superior to angels, superior to Moses, as is his message. His words are superior to Moses' message of the Torah. Not that it changes the Torah or the law, but that his words are a true understanding of that law. He has shown us that the Messiah is superior to the high priests in a superior priesthood to that of Aaron's because it is an eternal priesthood of the order of Melchizedek with an eternal high priest, Yeshua. And for the last few weeks, we've covered the uh, new covenant being superior to the first covenant that was made at Sinai. And what we found is the only real difference is that the, scripture, that the scriptures really bring forth in between these covenants is that the mediator of the covenant has changed from men in the first covenant to Messiah, now in the second. From the direction of men to the direct hearing of the Messiah who speaks the very words of God and now indwells our hearts and dwells the hearts of those who believe. And then, of course, it also has better promises. And we didn't really cover the promises much, or how they're better. If we go back to Jeremiah, we can get a quick idea, and it'll kind of fit into the message today. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I don't think you're going to find that promise in the first covenant. That is a promise that you're going to find in the second, that God is going to forgive the sins of Israel, and not only forgive them, but remember them no more. Nothing like that in the first covenant with Israel. Sin brought condemnation and punishment. However, because of Messiah Yeshua, he will forgive the sins of Israel and those of Israel, or those of Israel who turn to Messiah. Then it goes on to say, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. I don't think you're going to find a promise like that in that first. This is an eternal promise. Only if the sun, the moon, and the stars cease to shine. Will Israel cease? goes on to say, This is what the Lord says, Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of what of all they have done, declares the Lord. You see, these are eternal promises. Unless you can measure the heavens. Who can measure the heavens? They don't even have a telescope powerful enough to see to the end because there is no end. You can't measure the heavens. It's an eternal promise that has never been given to Israel in the first covenant. But now through the Messiah, eternal is, prom is, is, is possible. Okay, so I just wanted to touch on that. But I want to get back to the tabernacle because that's what the focus of this uh, message is. The earthly being a copy of what is in heaven. Next, he's going to take us to the tabernacle and to the Day of Atonement and show us how the ministry of Yeshua as high priest is superior. He's about to show us that everything in the tabernacle is a shadow 
of what is in heaven. Everything that is done there is a shadow of the reality in heaven. As we'll see, he actually calls what goes on there the Holy Spirit's parable to us. And this should take our attention right back to chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, where he told us this. He said, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Yeshua has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Because, and it is founded on better promises. So this was God's method of teaching us of his redemption, of the atonement for the, our sins, because the tabernacle was given to us as a copy of what is in heaven, a copy of the coming atonement, a copy of the tabernacle in heaven and the priesthood. In the ark, he gives us a copy of the throne of God in heaven. The reality of those shadows and copies was the Messiah, is the Messiah. The heavenly tabernacle, the true throne of God. The difference, as he will point out, is in the eternal nature of the heavenly again. The first, or the shadow, eventually passed. The tabernacle is no more. The second, or the reality, is eternal in nature. These things all teach of Yeshua, and also of the eternal throne and the rule of God. The author is going to now show us uh, how they teach on these things as we pick up in chapter 9 now in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which there were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which there was a golden jar of holding manna, Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But these things we cannot speak of in detail. Okay, the word covenant there has really been added by the translator, but when we consider the topic of the last chapter, they were correct in adding that for clarity. The regulations, it says, for the divine worship were given to the priests, the Israelites. You know, when many people read this, read uh, this, they think that the divine worship was where everyone worshiped God. They gathered together in the tabernacle. They sang, praise, sang songs and praises to God because that's what worship is to us. But the word for worship there in the Greek and in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it's avodah, and it means the service of God. What's being talked about is the daily service of God. The daily service of God was held in the outer, or as in the Greeks, uh, Greek says, proto, the first room, which is called the holy place. In addition to what went on inside the tabernacle, the service consisted of the daily burnt offering, the daily burnt 
Korban, offering. Not offered in these rooms, but outside the tabernacle. Now most wouldn't want to think of these offerings as worship. But they were the service of God. Inside the first room he speaks of is where the rest of the service was performed. And it consisted not of songs, but filling the menorah with oil, saying the daily prayers at the altar of incense, and once a week changing out the bread of the faces. I put up a picture here. It's a cutaway, an illustration of the tabernacle as it's described in the Torah. It's not the best one I've seen, but it gives us a good idea. It's a cutaway so that we can clearly see the inside. And the curtain between the two rooms is also cut away so that we can see both rooms at the same time in the same view. The tabernacle always had to be set up with the curtain to the holy place and the curtain to the tabernacle facing east so that the menorah would always be on the south side of the holy place. The bread of the faces would always be on the north side of the holy place. And the altar of incense would be just in front of the second curtain in the center of the room directly in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the second room, or the Holy of Holies. And a curtain separated the two rooms. Now, if you look at the text, and I put it up there underneath the tabernacle for you, you'll notice that it would seem that the author puts the altar of incense behind the second curtain in the Holy of Holies. And there are those like a fellow named Monty Judah who want to discredit the book of Hebrews. They'd like to see us remove it from the Bible. Because it appears that the author has this wrong. And of course, the word of God can't be wrong. So the book of Hebrews has to be eliminated from the word of God. That's what they would teach. That's their argument. And when he teaches this to people without a knowledge of Torah, they sometimes get confused. They think he's right. However, if we look at scripture, what we're going to see is that the altar of incense is always described as being in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 40, verse 5 says, Moreover, you shall set the gold altar of incense before the ark of testimony and set up the veil for the doorway to the tabernacle. As you can see, the ark and the altar are mentioned together. And the veil set up in the doorway. Reading this, it's unclear whether the, door, whether the veil actually separates them or, or not. What we're going to find is that the author follows the Torah exactly because he's making a point here. He's using the tabernacle instead of the temple. Why is that? Because it's important to his point. We're going to find that the author follows the Torah exactly. We're going to see why shortly. If we move to 1 Kings, we're going to find something very similar when it speaks of, of the altar. It says, The whole altar which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Also in the inner sanctuary, he made two carabim of olive wood, ten cubits high. If you read the, you look at the Hebrew, there where it says inner sanctuary, it means holy of holies. The point being that the altar of incense is associated closely in scripture with the holy of holies and the Ark of the Covenant, and rightfully so. Why would that be? Well, if the ark is a shadow of the throne of God and you want to petition God, where do you want to be? You want to be in front of him, right? So the altar of incense is rightly before the ark of the covenant, which is a shadow of the throne of God. This is not a huge mistake people make it out to be 
And in fact, it really shows the author's superior knowledge of Scripture and that he's keeping his discourse completely in line with Torah for his purpose. There's one other thing that shows that, shows that, that proves that the author knew where the, uh, arch, uh, the altar was, and that is everyone of the day was aware of the temple services. The author knew that part of the worship was offering prayer at the altar of incense on a daily basis. It was part of the divine worship. In fact, the people of Israel who weren't at the temple would stop what they were doing at these times of the day and join in with those prayers at the same time. Also, we have a priest offering the daily prayers recorded for us in our Gospels. The father of John the Baptist, Yochanan the Immerser, was Zechariah. He was a priest, not the high priest, mind you, but a priest. And we read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. When Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. You see, the priest who said the daily prayers at the altar of incense was chosen by Lot once and only once in his lifetime. And if he was chosen, he could go in and offer prayers at the altar of incense. And we can read the same thing in the Torah, Exodus chapter 30, verse 7. Aaron must burn fragrant incense at the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight. So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. And so we have incense being burned and prayers being said every day at the altar of incense. Well, if the altar of incense was in the Holy of Holies, as the author of Hebrews points out, and the, uh, uh, then as the author of Hebrews points out, the high priest only went in there once a year, how could they keep the commandment to burn the incense? It would be impossible. So there's no doubt that the author knew where the altar was. So understand that the author is not making a mistake here. He's only keeping his letter lined up with the words of Torah. Now that was kind of a rabbit trail. But with all the bad teaching coming from these folks like Monty Judah and the like, I would not want you to maybe someday listen to something like that and be led astray from the book of Hebrews. So I want to rectify that as we go through this. I put the picture up again. So we have uh, one more time here. We have two rooms, a holy place accessible by the priests. And within that space, we have the menorah, the table of the showbread, the bread of the presence, whatever you want to call it and the altar for burning incense. In the second, the Holy of Holies, within that room we have one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the tablets of the law, a jar of manna, the branch of Aaron that budded. And in that room, only the high priest would enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Now I say two rooms, and. I, I call them by name, but the author is going to use the terms protos and duros, first and second. All right? First for the holy place and second for the holy of holies, as we read on. Verse 6. Now, the, when these things have been so prepared, the priests continually entering the first tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but in the second 
Only the high priest enters once a year without take, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so again, the priests enter this tabernacle, the first room of the tabernacle, on a daily basis to perform the divine worship, or we could say the divine service of God. And that consists of trimming the menorah, Offering the prayers at the altar of incense. And of course, if we move outside the tabernacle, that service also consider, also does, also is, includes the daily offering. However, that's, he doesn't put the daily offering in his description because he's very concerned with the inside. And this is done on a daily basis, so the priests are going to go in and out of that first room of the tabernacle or the holy place continually. He's going to speak now of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he says, but into the second, the Holy of Holies, he owned, the high priest enters only once a year. And so we're going to see, this is going to really be the focus of his discourse on the tabernacle. He doesn't want to give us a lesson on the tabernacle, a complete description of the tabernacle. That's why he says, but these, of these things we cannot speak of in detail. The focus... The point of all of this is Yom Kippur. And so what does all of this mean? Well, he's going to get to that next. He says in verse 8, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol, and the word there is parable, for the present time. So now we see why he's referring to the tabernacle and not the temple. Why he's staying true to the Torah and his description. If we look at both temples, the first and the second, they strayed from what God gave in the tabernacle. They weren't the same dimensions or anything. The tabernacle was true to what was in heaven, and the author wants to be true to what, was in, what is in heaven and to what is in the Torah. He says the Holy Spirit is signifying because the Holy Spirit is the author of scriptures. And through the scriptures, the tabernacle and its setup. So the Holy Spirit is signifying, and the Greek word is, is I put it up here for you, means to make plain. Means to make plain. So the Holy Spirit wants to make plain, or we could say clear. What does he want to make clear? Well, the way into the true, holy place has not been disclosed. In other words, while the tabernacle stood, he uses, and, and he uses the presence tense, he says, while the tabernacle is standing, to show that it's still the situation, the way to the holy place was not known to the people and is not known to the people. The reason is simple. Only the priest could enter. You couldn't go in. The way to the Holy of Holies was not, even known, was not only not known to the people, but it wasn't even known to the priest because only the high priest went in there. And then only once a year. And he says, this is a parable for the present time. And what is, the par what is a parable? It's a teaching, a teaching of the present time. Has anyone been to the Holy of Holies lately? How about the holy place? Not, I'm not talking about your prayer closet. I'm talking about going there. 
Been there lately? Right? No, not at all. Because the way has not been made known, has not been made clear. I mean, in a sense it's been made clear because we now that the way, know that the way is through Yeshua. But we're not able to pass through. The tabernacle and the temples presented no way to the holy of holies or to the holy place. Except they were a shadow of the way. So the author uses all of that to teach this teach us and them, that the tabernacle with its priests, with its daily service of God, the lighting of the menorah, the temple prayers, the daily offerings, and the weekly changing of the bread of the faces were given by God as a parable, a teaching, a story filled with meaning, truth for the present time. In other words, All of this was given by God as a simple way of teaching you a clear truth which the Holy Spirit wished to make clear. In other words, he's going to say this in a moment in chapter 10. If we move forward just a little bit, he's going to say, For the law, for the whole of the Torah, has a shadow of the good things to come, but not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who want to draw near to God. Draw near. What? Did, I think he probably covered this in the, in the uh, commentary. The word korban means what? Draw near. For those who want to draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have conscience have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. And what he's saying is that all he's described is a parable, a teaching. And here he tells us it's a shadow and not the exact image. You know, Paul tells us the same thing in Colossians 2.16. He tells us of the festivals, that they are a shadow. In other words, if I take a bottle of water and I place it here on the beam and I shine a light this way, and you're going to see a shadow of that bottle of water on the wall, right? Right? The light on it will create a shadow on the wall. However, I'm going to tell you something. The shadow on the wall is not going to quench your thirst. You need the bottle of water that's casting the shadow for that, right? In fact, the shadow itself is in reality worthless. Except as a teaching, showing the way to the bottle. You see, the shadow, and so you know that there is a bottle, so you go looking for the bottle if you're thirsty, right? Right? We know the substance of the shadow thanks to Paul in Colossians 2.16. What did he say the, shadow, the substance of the shadow was? The Messiah. Israel and these folks as well have lost track of the meaning of the services in the temple itself. They've forgotten that they are a shadow. They, haven't, they have not seen that they are a shadow of reality. So if you look at my example, they're trying to drink the shadow. Right? 
They have begun to think that the temple itself was a means of making atonement. You see, when you really think about it, the plan, for the plan of God to really succeed, the temple and the tabernacles had to be destroyed. Because Israel was so fixed on the temple and the Torah, they had lost sight of it being a shadow. They had missed the reality. And that's why David says, in Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6, Five through seven, he says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But my ears you have opened. Some say, but, my, but you have prepared a body. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. You see, with the offerings, God did not desire. They did nothing for God. They did not offer forgiveness for sin or the atonement that God was after. They did not restore a person into the relationship that was lost when Adam fell because they were only a shadow or we could say a parable, a teaching. The teaching was not for God. The teaching was for us. He didn't want them. They were only to teach and David knew this and so David writes to the Messiah, I've come to do your will, O God. You see, he came to be the substance of the shadow. I've come to do your will. That's what God was after. One who would do his will. And that's what he's still after. Those who will do his will. It's always been the case. He wants those who will do his will through the one who did his will. And so the author is saying... Is what the author is saying is that while the tabernacle stood, the true significance of the offerings, in particular the Yom Kippur offerings, had not been disclosed the reality, or realized, and in fact, weren't fully understood until Messiah came and suffered and rose again. There was no atonement with God, or as my example of the shadow of the bottle, there was no quenching of the thirst. Verses 9 and 10 say, according to both gifts and sacrifices are offered, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Because the tabernacle and the gifts and the offerings offered there were only a teaching they could not make Perfect the conscience of the offerer. And don't get me wrong. They did help the offerer, right? They were a teaching. If one went with the right intentions to offer a sin offering, for an example. And he knew that he had sinned. He was repentant. And so he, he goes to the temple to offer his animal. He goes through the immersion bath. Because before you enter the temple, you have to go through the immersion bath. Then once in, he lays hands on the animal, he confesses his sins, then he takes the knife and he cuts the animal's throat. And the offerer looks at the animal die by his own hand for no other reason than that he had sinned. Hopefully, he goes away with an increased knowledge and understanding of the consequences of sin. A living, pure, without blemish 
animal had to die because of his sin. And as a rabbi that I once read pointed out, it should make him go away and sin no more. This whole event wasn't for God. It did nothing to cleanse anyone's sin before God. What it did was teach the offerer the consequences of his sin. It was a shadow of how God would cleanse the sin, but it didn't cleanse the sin because the blood of goats and bulls can never take away sin. So the author says, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so we here we get this other mysterious word, right? This is the only place that it's used in Scripture. It's, 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 it says the gift and sacrifices could not cleanse the conscience. They were only part of the body until the time of reformation. What did the author mean by reformation? Well, I think if we look a couple verses farther, we'll get an idea. But when Messiah appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by, with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not with the blood of goats and bull or calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so now we should have a little bit better idea what he means by reformation. And we're going to look at these verses a little more closely next week. But here's the definition of the Greek word that's used for for um, reformation. It says, in the physical sense, restoring to its natural and normal condition. So the reformation could be until... The whole of creation is made right again. And when is that going to be? It would take us right through the present evil age, right through the messianic king, kingdom, when all things are handed back to the Father. Then all things will be as they were created in the garden. Certainly that's the ultimate reformation, making what he's saying a future event. We could say he's speaking of the time when Messiah would come and the reality of the offerings would be made known by persons who, and when they accept Yeshua, that in his offering, a reformation happened to the individual. We're all reformed, right? There's a reformation that's happened to us. The reformation is the end of days, though. And even... The Messianic kingdom, when uh, even through the Messianic kingdom, before we have to get all through all of that before all things will be restored with God. But there is another way to reformation. Another way to reach the reformation besides waiting 7,000 years. And that is to accept Yeshua into your life, make him Lord of your life, master of your life, and then run out of time in your own life. Because as Paul would say, as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident. I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. Amen.